How has climate change been understood in the past? In what ways have people been seen as shaped by their environments? And how did empires try to redefine this on a global scale? Why does understanding historical theories of environmental change matter today? These are some of the questions of today's episode, which features Central Asia. In the late 19th century, this region often appeared in imperial imaginations as the setting for geopolitical intrigues as part of the so-called Great Game. It was also of growing environmental and scientific interest. Of particular fascination were multicultural stories, from Chinese pilgrims to Italian travelers and Islamic princes, stories that told dramatic tales of wandering rivers and shifting sands that had abandoned and buried cities in the Taklamakan Desert. An eclectic cast of explorers, geographers and scientists set out to locate these ruins. Here, they always depended on the labor and expertise of Central Asian guides and brokers, when they uncovered lost towns and dead forests, it quickly became clear that many of them existed in places incapable of supporting similarly large populations under the environmental conditions of the present. While historians have examined the dubious archaeological activities of Western explorers, like Oral Stein and Sven Hedin in the Taklamakan Desert, this episode instead explains how and why the lost cities of the Taklamakan became central to imperial theories of climatic stability at the turn of the 20th century. And it also gives a perspective on how they were linked to wider theories of climate change and desiccation with potentially global implications. These scientific investigations and debates were ultimately part of uneven and contested attempts by empires to understand and impose global environmental norms around the turn of the 20th century. This was also an essential moment in the globalization of understandings of climate and climate change. Studying these imperial categories ultimately matters because they continue to shape our geographical and environmental imaginations today. In particular, Central Asia became bound up in theories of migration and invasion in the face of changing climates, language which has insidious present-day echoes in the face of a growing global crisis. Welcome to Global Disconnect, the podcast that unravels the intricate connections and disconnections shaping our world. Join us as we explore the multifaceted dimensions of globalization beyond traditional narratives. From the spread of ideas to the experiences of individuals living between cultures, we delve into the social significance of these global processes. Get ready to challenge your perspectives and uncover the true complexity of our interconnected world. Today's episode is based on research currently being conducted by Dr. Lachlan Fleetwood. Dr. Fleetwood is a historian of science, empire, geography and environment. He completed a PhD at Cambridge University and is a Marie Sklodowska Curie Fellow at LMU Munich. His work focuses on empires' uneven imposition of ostensibly global environmental categories. He also investigates how geographical features like mountains and deserts can serve as scales for new global histories of science, empire and labour. Cambridge University Press published his first book, Science on the Roof of the World, Empire and the Remaking of the Himalaya, in 2022. The Taklamakan Desert spreads across Central Asia, surrounded by mountains. To the north, the Tian Shan, to the west, the Pamirs, 
and to the south, the Kunlun. In the northeast, the Taklamakan gives way to the Gobi. Today, this vast arid region is encompassed mainly by the Xinjiang province of China. In the 19th century, this region became an important sphere in imperial geopolitics in the context of the so-called Great Game, and tensions between the British and Russian empires, especially over British fears of a Russian invasion of their prize colony of India. At the same time, it remained one of the last allegedly blank spaces in European geography, largely unmapped and unknown. In the minds of European explorers, Central Asia was often imagined as a place on the edges of or between empires. It was characterized as remote, desolate, and inaccessible, a place of topographical excesses and environmental extremes. Of course, all of these failed to account for its long-standing role as a space of trade, migration, and indeed lives and livelihoods as part of the historical Silk Roads. Looking back in a 1924 lecture to the Royal Geographical Society in London titled Innermost Asia, its geography as a factor of history, Hungarian-born British archaeologist Oral Stein reflected on the importance of Central Asia to questions of geography and climate change. That great region of drifting sands and barren mountain ranges which may in its present condition well be called the dead heart of Asia is singularly fitted to illustrate, on the one hand, how geographical features may invest even the least attractive parts of our globe with very real importance for the history of civilization, and on the other hand, to show how helpful the evidence of the traces left on such ground by past human activity can be for throwing light on various aspects of much-discussed physical changes. Historians have for years examined the archaeological work, or as it is increasingly viewed, imperial plundering from the lost cities of the Taklamakan, including sites like Nia, Dandan Uilik, Lulan and Dunhuang, the latter home to the famous and spectacular Diamond Sutra, among other well-preserved written records. Figures like Oral Stein and the Swedish geographer and explorer Sven Hedin became well known for their archaeological exploits and were famous figures in their day. However, less well-known is the way environmental sciences and questions of climatic stability were central to their investigations. These European geographers and scientists are nevertheless not the only key figures in the story, and historians in recent years have been especially interested in the hidden histories of exploration. Looking closer reveals how Central Asian knowledge was relied on by the various imperial surveying and collecting expeditions and the critical roles that Central Asian brokers, guides, and technicians played in the early history of climate change science. Imperial knowledge of the existence of buried cities and wandering rivers in Central Asia was always refracted through a series of multicultural records, including the writings of Chinese pilgrims, Islamic chroniclers, and the famous account of Marco Polo. These multicultural histories and rumors became the subject of serious imperial and scientific attention in the later 19th century and into the 20th. Of particular importance were the travelogues of Chinese Buddhist travelers, two of the most famous being the pilgrim Faxian in the 5th century and the scholar Xuanzang in the 7th century, both of whom traveled along the edge of the Taklamakan Desert and commented on the lost cities. 
For example, Xuanzang recorded that near Khotan, The climate is soft and agreeable, but there are tornadoes which bring with them clouds of flying gravel. He recounted religious parables around towns buried by these flying clouds when their inhabitants showed insufficient piety. As well as evidence of the existence of the lost cities, these Chinese accounts provided a wealth of information about historical climate changes and demographic fluctuations. Another significant historical account was the 16th century Tariq i Rashidi, written by the Duglat prince, soldier, and later ruler of Kashmir, Mirza Muhammad Haidar. This two-volume chronicle interweaved Haidar's achievements with the history of the region. Haidar noted tales of how hunters who go there after wild camels relate that sometimes the foundations of cities are visible and that they have recognized noble buildings such as castles, minarets, mosques, and colleges. But when they returned a short time afterwards, no trace of these was to be found, for the sand had again overwhelmed them. On such a scale were these cities of which nowadays neither name nor vestige remains. 19th and 20th century European geographers recognized the value of these accounts and tried to reconcile the information they contained with their own observations and measurements. They became part of an ongoing tradition of writing about Central Asia's arid regions. Rather than discovering the lost cities for the first time, imperial explorers participated in a much longer story. Building on these historical accounts, European explorers attempted to map and understand the movement of rivers and sands in both the past and present. Here, understanding the shifting limits of habitability was seen as necessary to the broader imperial picture and the security of frontiers. But bound up in this was also a growing sense and growing anxiety that climates might not be as static as once assumed. As well as multicultural written records, Travelers like Oral Stein and Sven Hedin built on the existing practices of so-called treasure seekers. Many of the ruined towns were already well known and had been systematically explored by Central Asian people before European interest, searching for gold and valuable items. As Stein explained in his 1900-1901 expedition, these professional artifact hunters long predated his archaeological interest. Treasure seeking that is the search for chance finds of precious metal within the areas of ancient settlements now abandoned to the desert, has been a time-honored occupation in the Khotan Oasis, offering to certain more adventurous elements of the population the combined fascinations of a kind of lottery and a roving life. European archaeologists, scientists and geographers like Stein and Hedden attempted to co-opt these existing networks that already sought out desert ruins albeit for different ends. Or at least they claimed these were different ends, and their accounts were carefully written to try to assert that European archaeology was superior and different to local practices of treasure-seeking. Central Asian treasure-seekers quickly adapted to exploit the demands of European collectors. These brokers became critical sources of information and essential support for expeditions, their services were wide-ranging, including managing the intricate logistics for desert travel, providing translations and historical knowledge, negotiating local passports and permissions, and storing and transporting archaeological finds. 
A former treasure seeker named Turdi Kwaja was one of the most indispensable. As Oral Stein wrote of his companion, Old Turdy felt quite at home among these desolate surroundings, which he had visited so frequently since his boyhood. It was the fascinating vision of hidden treasure which had drawn him and his kinsfolk there again and again, however scanty the tangible reward had been of their trying wanderings. Yet the familiarity thus acquired with the silent relics of the past had developed in him an instinctive interest in all traces of the life that once reigned there. Stein took Turdy's observations seriously, frequently questioning him about both archaeological and environmental topics. As he guided me among these ghostly wrecks of houses and answered the many questions I put to him about his own observations, I could see the shy man grow more and more animated. It was evident from his communications that the conditions of the dunes were changing very slowly at this site. This suggests the changing habitability of the Taklamakan was well known, and intergenerational knowledge informed a growing picture of environmental shifts in the region. At times, Stein seems to have seen Turdy as an expert, but he also often depicted him via the stereotype of the faithful follower. This was a trope commonly used in colonial accounts to downplay dependents. Later, when bidding goodbye, Stein wrote, for example, I thought of how he managed to find me that Christmas Eve in the heart of Lopnor Desert, and how another time I'd sent him off from the foot of the Nanshan for a weary ride of months. But whatever the occasion, there was nothing to read in his face but calm unconcern and a sort of canine devotion. Unfortunately, we don't know how Turdy felt as he left no written account. The colonial archives are full of gaps and silences when it comes to indigenous assistants like Turdy, which is one reason these histories are challenging to recover. At least in Stein's estimation, the relationships between explorers and guides could sometimes cross into friendship, but as Stein's words indicate, these were always mediated by civilizational assumptions, sometimes deeply problematic racial tropes, and usually also a solid dose of paternalism. Stein, who never married or settled, nevertheless spent much of his life in the company of men like Turdy Kwaja, working with him over many years and multiple expeditions. Ultimately, the stories of people like Turdy are inseparable from the history of climatic sciences developed at the edge of empires. While names like Oral Stein and Sven Hedin are readily associated with the lost cities of the Taklamakan, if we are to truly understand the histories of climate sciences and their globalization, then names like Turdy Kwaja must be as well. In addition to environmental disasters caused by moving sands, these buried cities also provided evidence of local changes in the course of rivers and broader climatic shifts. In particular, the various ruins indicated that Taklamakan towns and cities had previously supported populations larger than possible based on the prevailing climatic condition and amount of water available. The Swedish explorer and geographer Sven Hedin was particularly interested in how the climate of the Taklamakan had shifted over time and what this meant for environmental stability. For example, in 1898, Hedin gave a highly romanticized description of a kutek, or dead forest. Hedin noticed how at the edges of this site, a few of the poplars were still alive, the last survivors of a dying race the last outposts on the edge of the murderous sands, left behind and forgotten, as it were when the forests which accompany the rivers followed the Keriadaria in its movement towards the east. 
As well as cities overwhelmed by shifting sands, it was clear that rivers had abandoned these in other cases. This shifting of waterways was compared around the globe, with other famous examples being in Mesopotamia, where the movement of the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers had caused the abandonment of Sumerian cities like Ur in what is today Iraq. Hedin was particularly interested in understanding the causes and timing of the abandonment of the Taklamakan towns. As he mused upon uncovering the ruins of Dandan Uyilik, At what period was this mysterious city inhabited? When did its last crop of russet apricots ripen in the sun? When did the sour green leaves of its poplars yellow for their last fall? When was the trickling hum of its mill wheels silenced forever? When did its despairing people finally abandon their dwellings to the ravenous moor of the Desert King? Of course, one can't help but read in this an echo of fears for our future. These abandonments were nevertheless not only seen as natural catastrophes. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, empires often used the notion of improvement to justify appropriating both territories and peoples. Especially in the 19th century, desert environments became the center of declensionist narratives, which saw deserts as ruined forests that needed to be saved and made back into forests once more. Declensionist narratives were crucial in depicting arid environments as wastelands and spaces of wasted potential. Imperial scientists commonly linked critiques of soil, hydrography and climate with supposed cultural failings. This gave rise to the profoundly insidious and racist idea that not only had indigenous populations not made effective use of their environments, but even worse, that they had squandered them and thus deserved to be dispossessed. As well as tracing shifting sands and wandering rivers in the Taklamakan, imperial scientists also addressed the broader questions of regional and later global climatic changes. Sand dunes could encroach, rivers could move, and arid lines could shift. But the question was also whether Central Asia was less habitable overall than it had been earlier when the various Taklamakan towns had been abandoned. Here, Central Asia became key to wider questions around environmental change, particularly contested theories of desiccation or the idea that parts of the planet were becoming drier over time. This brings us to the infamous American geographer Ellsworth Huntington, who visited Central Asia during two expeditions in 1903 and again in 1905 and 6. Huntington went on to write several widely read books on climate history. The opening line of The Pulse of Asia, which was published in 1907, indicates the ambition and scope of his work. This book is the record of a journey in Central Asia, and its aim is to illustrate the geographic relation between physical environment and man, and between changes of climate and history. Huntington initially argued strongly for progressive desiccation, the idea that places were getting gradually drier, though he later modified this to an argument for cyclical or pulsatory climatic changes. In summing up his observations of environmental change, Huntington stated, if we suppose that the climate of Central Asia has grown more arid during the period covered by history, all the difficulties disappear. While searching for evidence of desiccation, Huntington also set out to trace the primary causes of the abandonment of the towns. In his notebooks, he compares various sites and includes desiccation as a factor in each, 
plus a variety of natural and cultural factors, from rising soil salinity to war and political failings. In placing these observations, Huntington also kept a global and comparative picture in mind, referring often to contemporary work in the United States on deserts in Utah and Arizona. Ultimately, Huntington combined his scientific surveys, ancient written records, and the knowledge of his Central Asian guides into sweeping forms of analysis, where everything from civilizational attainment to racial character was almost entirely attributable to climate. These ideas are often referred to as environmental determinism, and theories that the climate can shape human potential and physical and even intellectual characteristics. As Huntington argued, The civilization of the world varies almost precisely as we should expect if human energy were one of the essential conditions, and if energy were in large measure dependent upon climate. This hypothesis resulted in Huntington's notorious graphs of the global distribution of energy and civilization based on climate. Inevitably, Europe and North America were highlighted as the best climates. Just as they were depicted as allegedly the most civilized amid broader and ongoing attempts to justify imperialism. Huntington has attracted considerable scrutiny from geographers dealing with the dark past of their discipline, but also more widely from historians where he is often, and not unfairly, seen as the apogee of Eurocentric and racist environmental determinism in the early 20th century. Huntington's unsystematic and often wildly speculative work was nevertheless not entirely uncontroversial even in his own time, as evident in his unsuccessful attempts to secure a full professorship at Yale where he spent most of a long but always precarious career, as well as by imperial explorers. Questions of regional and global desiccation were taken up by others, and the lost cities of the Taklamakan became central to debates on climate change writ large. Notable was the Russian anarchist, scientist and prince Peter Kropotkin. Kropotkin gave a lecture on The Desiccation of Eurasia, published in the Geographical Journal in 1904. In this, he argued that, Altogether, it is quite certain that within historical times, East Turkestan and Central Mongolia have not been the deserts they now. They have had a numerous population, advanced in civilization, which stood in a lively intercourse with different parts of Asia. These investigations into collapses when long-inhabited places became uninhabitable were also linked to grandiose questions of societal breakdown and wider migrations. The British explorer and geologist John Walter Gregory summarized these in a 1914 article titled Is the Earth Drying Up? which collected evidence and theories from around the world. Many of the geographical changes have been proved by unmistakable evidence, and according to Prince Kropotkin, they occasioned some of the greatest historic movements among men. Thus, he attributes the overthrow of the Roman Empire to the dwindling rainfall of Central Asia, which turned whole tribes of agriculturists into nomads by the repeated failure of their crops, and finally drove the drought-stricken barbarians into Europe, owing to their own lands having become uninhabitable. Gregory remained unsure if these implied universal changes. While regional or local changes in climate were increasingly widely understood, it was still debated whether the climate could change on a global or planetary scale. 
It was also only slowly becoming clear that these changes could have anthropogenic causes, which most of us take for granted today. Even as he grappled with the possibility of global changes, Gregory nevertheless understood that changes of climate could have vast societal consequences. If this desiccation of the earth is still in progress, it must lead to further great political changes. For in time, the populations of the world will be forced out of the centers of the continents and crowded into the continental margins. These have been just a few examples of the way imperial surveyors, archaeologists and geographers sought out the lost cities of Central Asia and attempted to measure and categorize the habitability of environments in relation to global norms, even as it was increasingly clear that climatic categories might be unstable over a range of timescales. While imperial scientists enshrined temperate European and North American environments as norms, they nevertheless also borrowed from existing ideas of landscape, if haphazardly and not always coherently. Ultimately, considering these overlaps and disconnected processes of globalization allows for a reflection on a time when scientific disciplines like geography and climatology were in the making. It also shows the significant extent to which problematic imperial categories, now often taken for granted, still shape our geographical imaginations today. As astronomers continue to search the universe for new habitable planets, and billionaires speculate about terraforming Mars, it is just as essential to historicize the changing limits of habitability on this one. In so doing, we can recognize that judgments about changing habitability have never been free from cultural bias or political interest. More widely, understanding imperial questions of climate stability, with their post-colonial legacies, is essential to countering a recurrence of racist and environmentally determinist thinking in the face of the current climate crisis. Seen, for example, in language around climate-induced migration and climate refugees. At a time of increasing concern over the future uninhabitability of potentially large parts of our planet, it is imperative that current debates be placed in their historical contexts. Examining historical understandings of climate ultimately reminds us that our relationship with the environment has not always been the same. Historicizing ostensibly global environmental categories and imperial imaginaries shows how seemingly universal norms have histories. But this also means that they might have different futures. Understanding these histories can help open up possibilities for imagining our relationship with the environment differently today, as indeed we must. Thank you for joining us on Global Disconnect. Stay curious, keep questioning, and remember that understanding our interconnected world is an ongoing process. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you prefer listening to your favorite podcast shows.